So join me in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians, no, chapter 3, verse 2. I'll get it right. Chapter 3, verse (laughs) 2. This is a great verse. And say, what an unusual verse. You're hopefully there by now. You see it in front of you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Our theme is more Christ. That's what Paul expressed in his mentality all the way through this. That's the only thing he wanted, right? Christ. Everything else was useless to him, garbage to him, detrimental to him, because he wanted more Christ, more, more, more. And in his quest to know Christ more and more, he calls out to those, like the Philippians, and still that voice is heard today, join me in this. May Christ be all you want, too. Your sole ambition, your desire, your appetite, all that you want to use for words there. May it be all about Christ and more and more. For he said in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that is more of what you already have. That's more Christ. So we're working our way through this passage and we looked at his mentality. That's a big chunk of the chapter. We looked at his appeal to each of us to be like that too. And that was from verse 12 through 16. And now we're going through the commands that he gives. There are four commands. Last week was keep on what? Being joyful. Yes, keep on being. They're all going to be a B, okay? Keep on being joyful. We saw that in verse 1. Second command is in verse 2. Keep on bewaring. The third command is in verse 17. Keep on becoming. And also in verse 17, keep on beholding. And we're going to get to those soon, but today keep on bewaring, because you just saw the verse. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Heavenly Father, help us today. We have your word open in front of us, and it's a powerful thing. It does change us, and as we submit to it today, we want that. We want your work to be done in our hearts. We want that desire that Paul has shown us throughout this chapter to be ours too. We want more Christ. Teach us, Lord, through this time, we pray, and do your great work in each of our hearts, we pray, that we might be more like Christ because we've spent this time with you. In Jesus' name, amen. For many years I thought, as I read through Philippians chapter 3, that this whole chapter would have been perfect, except for verse number 2. Said Most of it is something you put on a wall, a plaque, especially the idea of rejoicing and such. Verse number 2 just doesn't look good. I mean, it's usually in a red sign that's about this big. It says, beware of the dog. And that doesn't seem to match decor in most people's house on their walls, right? That goes on the front porch or out on the fence or something outside. Beware of the dogs. And I said, well, Paul, this seems a little out of place. A little bit bizarre, maybe. Beware of the dogs. The first time I looked at this, back uh, 
several years ago. I call it the 20th century. All right? I know we're in the 21st, and some of you don't know the 20th century. I remember it very well. But the 20th century thought that I always had with this was, you know, German shepherds, golden retrievers, uh, poodles. <laughs> Those are the pictures I get in my mind. If you were to read William Tyndale's translation back from the 1500s, you're going to say, see, it looks something like, beware of the doggies. And I said, wow, that's a, a picture that, you know, little puppies all over the floor and, and rolling and falling over each other and plenty of ample room to trip and fall yourself. You should beware of those little critters. Um, if you do not like dogs, this could be your life verse. But you look at it with me and you say, well, what's this all about, Paul? In, in the context, it's very important. But more times than not, when we're reading or doing Bible study or just pulling verses out here and there, we don't think of its context. And we read it, and our first impression is, huh? What is that all about? Beware of the dogs. Some, some commentaries, actually, some commentaries I have read have gone to say that while Paul was writing, and suddenly another thought came into his mind, and he kind of shot out at it and uh, thought about it and wrote it down, and then he swerved back to his context. And they suggest that uh, uh, Paul was just on a, a moment, <laughs> that he was thinking of something else. I don't think so. I like to put all verses in their context. I believe that, and I teach that way. And so, to keep this in its context makes a lot more sense. And I'm going to show you how that works today, because it's a fascinating warning. You'll see that uh, he gives warnings by the word beware. He does it three times here. In verse number 2. Um, and the way he says it, if I link it with verse number 1, he has said this before. He has been in the practice of warning about these things before. He knew that they were dangers to the church that needed to be addressed. He knew this danger needed to be addressed. And especially to a group like the Philippians who were really a quality church. As far as we would study everything about them, they were a strong church, actively involved, doing their work, ministering to people. They were supporting Paul's ministry. There was everything about this church that was good. And that's why this is a very important warning. Because so many things are lost because we've lost our focus after doing so many good things. The, the point is that they were to have, as Paul stresses here, more Christ. But these that are mentioned in verse number 2 are hindrances to that. So let's walk through this. A little bit of history to get you a, a feel for the context, and maybe that will help this morning. Um, take Paul on his first missionary journey. You can maybe find a map in the back of your, your Bible, but you can think with me too. Uh, Paul comes up to a place called Asia Minor. It's North, and it's a little bit to the west of the territory of Israel. And then you go up north and over across top of the Mediterranean Sea. And there he comes into Asia Minor, a territory we later called Galatia. And yes, that's where the book would have been written to the Galatians, the believers there. But Paul travels up to a little town called Pisidia, Antioch. And there at Pisidia, Antioch, he and Barnabas start their ministry uh, to the church, well, there weren't churches yet. They were ministering to people, 
and leading them to Christ. And I'm going to turn back to Acts 13. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read you a handful of verses to get your feel for Paul's ministry. Acts 13, I'm going to start in verse 14. And I'm actually going to go through about four or five chapters here, just highlighting certain verses as we go. But this is his first missionary journey, Acts 13, verse number 14. This is where it starts. He says, uh, let me find the right section. Okay. He goes on from Perga. They arrive at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And they start to read the scriptures. They, they start to share Christ with them and preach to them. And Paul stood up and prayed uh, and preached and such. You can see in verse 16 on. Down to verse number 42. Let's see how they responded to this sermon. I'm not going to read the sermon. But in verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken of to them the next Sabbath. Did they like it? Yeah, they said, hey, this is great stuff. Let's do this again. Let's do this again. And so they were urging him, it says, that that would happen. Verse number 43. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Excellent response. Don't be surprised where there's an excellent response, there's opposition. Next verse. Verse number 44. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. There's a response. Jealousy. They didn't like this. They started to speak about against Paul. Jump down to verse 50. Here's more trouble. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. So a great start. People wanted to hear it. Opposition came in right away. It limited their ministry. And Paul says, let's go up the street. Iconium has got to be better than this. So off they went to Iconium into chapter number 14. Chapter 14, verse number 1. Let's start right there. Turn my notes over. In verse number 1. In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed both of Jews and of Greeks. Sounds like a good start, right? Verse number 2. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Stirred up their minds. Stirred up their minds to embitter them, to to afflict them with evil thoughts. Not going so well. Paul said, let's go to Lystra. It's got to be better there. So up they go up to Lystra in verse number 19. After spending some time there, notice. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up 
And I love this verse. This is one of my favorites. He entered the city. <laughs> they just stoned him and left him out there. Said, he's dead. It's over. Woo, let's go home. And they look back and he's following them. As they go back into the city. Which way would you go? I think I'd be heading for the next town. But Paul went right back into Lystra to continue his ministry. I just love that. I love that. But eventually, he does this circuit, and he goes back to the towns that he had spent time in, and he heads his way back to Jerusalem. In chapter 15, there's a great big council of all the bigwigs of the church at the time, because suddenly Gentiles were being saved, and they didn't know that was possible. I always laugh when I think that. It's not possible for a Gentile to be saved, but it was happening, and they said, now what do we do with them? And so they had to have a debate over that. And we'll go into that some other story. But then Paul goes to this council and he decides at the end of the council, let's go back up to the same place as we were in Galatia and see the believers there and see how they're doing. And so he picked uh, Silas to go with him this time. And you know there's a story of him and Barnabas and having a dispute. And Barnabas went this way and Paul went that way. And he took Silas with him. And they went back up to Lystra again where he had been stoned. He went up to Derby. He went to these other places. But this time he went with another purpose. As well as encouraging the saints, he collected certain men with him. And among them was a man named Timothy. These were believers. And they started to form a team, and they started to travel across Asia Minor. And as they got closer to the end of the uh, territory there above the, the Mediterranean Sea, they were heading toward Ephesus territory, that the Lord called to Paul and said, Come to Macedonia, northern part of the Greek territory, but cross over into Macedonia, and there you need to be of service to me too. So, Paul went into a place called Philippi, northern Macedonia. And there we're going to talk about them, but that's chapter 16. Paul went to Philippi. And then while he was there, he moved on into chapter 17. That's where I'm going to take you next, down to chapter 17 to a place called Thessalonica. And we have a couple of books written to them too, First and Second Thessalonians. That was a church that was built from persecution. It was an incredible ministry that the Lord has brought about there. But Paul's encountering something not so uncommon. In chapter 17, verse 5, it says, But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. Jason was a synagogue leader, and they thought maybe if they punished him and persecuted him, they'd get Paul too. And so Thessalonica was a tough place to go, and they were hiring people at this point. Hiring people. The enemies of the cross were were hiring people to start riots. Down to verse number 13. Paul got out of Thessalonica and into Berea. And in verse number 13... But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of Christ had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It was always right on his heels, weren't they? Constantly, wherever he went, they followed him. 
That was his second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, many years had passed, and Paul's heading toward Jerusalem, toward the end of that journey, and he stops at a harbor. And he says, I, I've got to, I don't have time to stop and speak to the folks in Ephesus here, but I do want to speak to the elders for a few minutes. So in Acts chapter 20, move over there with me. Acts chapter 20, and verse number 18, Paul is speaking to the elders of Ephesus along the beachfront here. And he says in verse number 18, chapter 20, Acts 20, 18, he says this, uh, You yourselves know that from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials, which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jew and Greek of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I know, or I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So Paul knows where he's going. He says, I'm, I'm heading that way. I'm going to do that anyway. But this is his address to them in verse 28. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Savage wolves. Grievous. If you have a King James Version. Grievous wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Watch. Beware. Watch for them. I haven't stopped to warn you about this for last three years, he said. For three years I did not cease to admonish you about this with tears. Was it Paul's practice to warn about false teachers? Oh, yes. Constantly, constantly, constantly warning them to keep them safe, to keep them safe, to keep them safe. Now these words were written that you just read here in Ephesians, or, or toward the Ephesians here in Acts chapter 20. These were written just a few years before Paul picked up his pen and wrote to the Philippians from his prison cell. Just a few years difference. And the difference for Paul is right now, he is limited. He is in arrest. He cannot get out. He's waiting a trial. He can't go. But the false teachers still have free reign. He was in the cell, but the dogs are still active. And that's where he's writing to them as he's saying to them, Beware, beware, beware. This is a major concern on his heart. Go back to Philippians now. You've got a bit of the history. And in chapter number 1, you'll see what Paul's contending with in this book. Just so we keep it in its context. Chapter 1, verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ 
even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Can you believe it? There were some even preaching to get at Paul. Paul says, well, if they're speaking about Christ, I'm not going to complain. But they were using that opportunity because Paul wasn't available to continue this way. Chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents. It's fascinating to me. He brings this up again in chapter 2, about having the same mind, and having that mind be the mind of Christ. So Paul keeps repeating himself. And if you hadn't noticed that before, that would explain what he said at the end of chapter uh, 3, verse 1. Where he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, but it's a safeguard for you. What are the same things? Verse 2. Beware, beware, beware. That's what he kept warning them about. Every place he went, he told them, beware, beware, beware. So here, when we cross it as our second command, keep on bewaring as I like to call it here, you'll notice something. Though I said there are four commands in chapter 3, there are actually six. And I'm not trying to deceive you. But in chapter 3, verse 2, there are three of them, and they're all the same kind of command. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the circumcision. All three of those I put in the one concept. Keep on bewaring. You've got three out there that are your enemy. And you need to beware of them. But the one command is keep on bewaring. Let, let's, let's break it apart a little bit and understand what is he talking about here and what's the value of these words. Number one, he is still addressing the Philippians. He's not talking to the dogs. Just so you know, it's a real simple thing to say, but he's talking to the Philippians. Second, He's speaking to them, like we saw before, in the present tense. A present tense command is, keep on. And it's very likely we should have those words in there. But we're saving ink and translation work anymore. So it doesn't say keep on, but that's the way it should see, read. Keep on bewaring. Keep on bewaring. What is the danger? Stopping. Stopping. Now, what's interesting is that they have been given this command sometime before. No doubt when Paul was in Philippi. He was there several times. He talked to them about this. And they couldn't relinquish it yet. Do you know that it's probably been ten years since Paul was with the Philippians? And as he's writing to them, maybe ten years have passed, and he says, keep on bewaring. And they say, Paul, can't we stop yet? Says no. Matter of fact, folks, it's been two thousand years since it's been written, and guess what? We still need to do. Keep on bewaring. 
That hasn't gone away because as long as there is a faithful church, there will always be an enemy to the church. It's the way that Satan works. There's no need to persecute those who agree with you. The more the church resembles the world, the less the enemy needs to hound them. So if there's persecution coming the way of the church, let that be a a thing to consider as something worthwhile. That means the enemy has noticed (laughs) that the church wants to be more like Christ. As a result of that, Paul doesn't stop. He doesn't pull off the the pedal here at all. He says, keep on bewaring, keep on bewaring, keep on bewaring. This is very important, but let's understand what bewaring is all about. It's not just a quick glance and move on. To beware is to look intently at something and contemplate what that is. In a sense, study it. Understand it. You, you are all familiar with that beware of the dog sign. You've seen it many times in your life, no doubt. Maybe you have them at your house. Beware of the dog. When you see it, you're walking up to a fence or maybe on the fence post and you have to go up to the house for something. You see that sign, what's the first thing you do? You look for a dog, don't you? You say, where is he? Don't you hate those silent ones? You just don't see him and you don't hear him until it's too late. It's like, beware the dog. So you're bewaring because the sign says so. You're already looking for something. That's the nature of this command. Keep on looking. Keep on with intent in your manner, carefully, deeply. Have it in your mind. And here's the great word, because this is why the Merriam-Webster online dictionary put it. Plan for it. Plan for it. That's what a beware should have you set up to do. Plan for it. And I think that's very interesting because when you bring it down to a simple idea, know them well and expect them always. That was Paul's ministry. Expect them always. Everywhere he went, I showed you. They were right behind him, weren't they? And matter of fact, he probably set his clock to it and says, oh, they'll be here in ten minutes, watch. Because he expected them. He planned for it. He knew it would happen. You know, even in rejoicing, we're called to do that in verse number one. We have to keep on watching for those who will destroy our desire to rejoice. We have to watch for it. Even in something good, we have to beware. We have to beware. You know, sheep are very content when they're just sitting with their shepherd. Do you realize when you study the shepherd that we follow, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not afraid to take you into dangerous places? A couple of examples. When John was writing about the shepherd, Jesus speaking himself, he says, and he puts forth his own sheep in John 10 verse 4, and he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice, but the stranger... Oh, they won't follow the stranger. They don't know the voice from the stranger, so they flee from him. There's difficulty there. Whenever you're focusing on the shepherd, you're walking by the shepherd, sometimes he might be walking into dangerous territories. Psalm 23 is a beautiful example of that. He can walk through the valley of the shadow of death, can't he? And for us, that might scare us to death. But he's with us. What I like is what's on the other side of the valley. 
in Psalm 23, verse number 5. When they get out of the valley, they go up on the hill. And what's waiting for them? A meal. He prepared this wonderful banquet in front of them. Thou preparest the table before me. And then the rest of the phrase? In the presence of my enemies. Lord, there's better places to eat. Why did you put us here? Why are we picnicking here when all around us are the wolves and the lions and the bears and the other dangers that we as sheep have? The Lord takes you to places like that. Because he says, oh, don't look at them. Look at me. Look at me. Trust me. They say to lead a horse out of fire, you have to put a blinder on them because they're, they get focused on the fire. So you have to do that and then lead them and they will follow. That's a picture here we see so often is that we want to keep our focus on Christ and more Christ and more Christ. And let me ask you this. When you're spending more time with Christ, are your enemies going to go away? No. They are not going to go away. They are not going to go away. That's why this command is so important in the middle of all these beautiful thoughts about keep on rejoicing. You have those out there who want you to stop it. They don't want you to have a love for Christ. They don't want you to worship Christ. They don't want you to focus on Christ. They certainly don't want you to become like Christ. And they will spend every effort they can to stop you. That's why so many of the epistles deal with false teachers. It's not because we just want to, you know, get to know a little bit about them and say, hey, that's the way they are. But the church needs to know that there are enemies. And the enemies behave certain ways. They speak certain ways. You could go into Second Peter, chapter 2. Jude, the whole book, we dealt with that before. Second Timothy, right around chapter 3 and 4, goes into a lot of detail about the, false, uh, about the behavior of the false teacher. That warning is given to us so we can spot them. So we know what they look like. So we're not deceived by their disguises. Because they will work their way and usually disguise themselves to act like one of us with the whole intention of destroying. What do we call them? Wolves in sheep's clothing. That's happened so many times before in history. I personally have experienced that several times in my ministry. People who the rest of the church thought, wow, this, this guy's great. He looks good. He looks important. Let's have him join our church. Let's have him a part of our church. I've told you before stories that I had in Birmingham as a young pastor. Uh, a disciple of Armstrongism was trying to weasel, weasel his... I use weasel. <laughs> That's really a good word for it. He was trying to weasel his way into our church congregation. His goal was to change the pastor. And it was an intense, intense days trying to figure out who this guy was. Now, I didn't know. I was young in the faith, and I did not know what they believed, what they taught. I did not know the dangers of that cult. But what I did know was something that I call common sense. When you open the refrigerator door and smell something bad, you know there's something rotten in there, but you don't know what it is. You've got to look for it. And that's my experience with that guy. I said, something doesn't smell right here. And it took a while to 
figure it out. But I finally figured out what he was trying to do. And I confronted him with God's word and he left. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I was scared to death, folks. <laughs> that was a hard thing to do. For a young pastor, that was scary. But I walked down that road realizing that the Lord's word is powerful. It's sharp. And just use it. Just use it. That's all Paul did. And that's why he kept warning them. Understand what you're looking for. Know what they look like. You can spot them if you understand the truth. And that's what much of the epistles talk about there. Knowing the difference. But there's a second thing to know. Not just their character. I mean, that's all over. You could study their character. But what you also ought to know is their end. Their end. Far too often we're scared by the loud bark. We're scared by the teeth that show. We're scared by the bristling hair. We're intimidated by them because one of their greatest weapons is to scare you to death. I mean, how many of you walk real close to the fence right out there in the parking lot? Those are little things. You're bigger than that. But nobody likes to go too close, do they? Those things bark too much. They annoy you. I know Steve's got to do something about them. But uh, they're like, ah, these, these dogs. Here. A lion's, one of its greatest tools is its roar. Because it paralyzes its, its prey. And that's what it does. But here's what we need to know about the false teacher, especially the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision. All of these folks come into this same picture. Their end is they do not win. They do not win. That's important to realize. Not only is our shepherd a protector of the flock, but it also says that our shepherd will bring his flock home. They will not win. Jesus said, I will build my church, and you know the rest of it, don't you? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we know this warning is not just a mere glance. It's not just look at it and move on. But to keep on bewaring is constantly to be ready to spot it and respond. Spot it and see it. Because this is part of the picture of becoming more like Christ. And more with Christ. And more of Christ. Because the enemy would have nothing more that they want to do to you than to give you less Christ. That's their goal. Frequently, Paul refers to these, and commentators refer to these people as Judaizers. One commentary on the book of Galatians says that Paul was writing the book of Galatians to counter the false teachers, the Judaizing false teachers. Now you say, well, what is a Judaizer? They they were those who went about making Jewish proselytes, not Christian proselytes, Jewish proselytes. They wanted anybody who is going to claim a relationship with God to submit, first of all, to the Mosaic Law Code. And that ritual is what they wove into their concepts of Christianity and say, if you become submissive to the Mosaic Law, then you could become a Christian too. And they were taking that to the Gentiles. 
and they were encouraging Gentiles to follow the Mosaic law. Now, we know very clearly from Scripture, salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. We know it says, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that we cannot boast. Paul wrote that. Matter of fact, Paul contended with these people, as I've already shown you in the history of the book of Acts, is wherever he went, these followed him. The Jews, the Jews, the Judaizers is what they were. They went to counter the gospel message and to impose upon them a system of works for salvation. Paul called them dogs. Why? Because they were like Lassie? No. No, that's not what they pictured dogs at in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Let me tell you what it was, the description of a dog. A pack of filthy animals that roam the street eating garbage and terrorizing people. It's never used as a compliment in Scripture. There's nothing endearing about these dogs. They were not domesticated, and you don't take them to England for the Westminster Kennel Club show. That's not who they are. There are 23 verses in the Bible that speak directly of dogs, and none of them have the word pet next to them. They're filthy beasts that eat dead animals and dead people. Dogs brought fear. I don't want to belabor the point, but it's clear to see they're dangerous to the church. For Paul to give that title to these people, that was a clear depiction. You don't want to avert your eyes away from these guys. They can destroy you in a heartbeat. Beware. Beware, beware, beware. Let's look at the other two pictures here real quickly. Evil workers, the word kakos is given to that as their description. That means they are worthless. Oh, yeah, they're busy as bees. They're working, 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 working in your congregation. They're busy as can be, and everybody says, Wow, look at all their effort. Look at all their time. Look at all their expenses. But it has no worth. Because everything they've done is busy for themselves. They're not busy for the Lord. Busy for themselves. And the test of that will come in the end when all their works are set before the Lord and they're examined by fire. And what's going to last? Nothing. Nothing. You want to know how to survive that test? Let me put it down this way. Not about your salvation. It's not that at all. It's about your works. And here's my little test guide if you want to help it with this. If it's done according to His will... If it's done according to his direction, if it's done according to his strength, if it's done according to his attitude, and it's done according to his glory, it will pass. Because guess who gets the emphasis? He does. But when it's done to our wills, and our wisdom, and our strength, with our attitudes, for our own glory, it will not stand the test. These are evil workers that Paul addresses here. They are so busy, carefully busy, very busy, but their works are worthless. Beware of them. They could suck you in in a minute. And you would think, well, that's what it's all about. Paul says, no, the focus is more Christ, not more you. More Christ. The enemies of the church would like you to give more of yourself and less of Christ. 
The third description, I'll stop with this. The circumcision. There's so many times you, you read that word in Scripture and say, what are you going to do with that, Pastor Bob? Well, in chapter 2, verse 2, or 3, verse 2, it talks about the false circumcision. In verse 3, it talks about the true circumcision. And those are two different words. The false circumcision are those who, it's very negative. Some translations use the word mutilate there. Because everything they do is to cut down, to cut down, to cut down, to cut cut down. And the concept of mutilation is simply this. They, they, the, one more suff, the, the more one suffers, the more one chops away, the more merit they get with God, right? That's their concept. If God loves it more and more, then they torture themselves. But they have a wrong view of God. They have a wrong view of God, and it's a terrible example for other people. God has said that and warned about it, even in Leviticus. You shall not make baldness upon your head, neither shall you shave off the corners of your beard, nor shall you cut your flesh. All of that was done for worship's sake. They thought in their appearances, people would be impressed. I've got more to add, and I really do have to stop, don't I? Because some of you are saying, I've got dinner waiting. And you don't want to leave with this word, do you? I mean, that doesn't sound very pleasant. The picture is this, and I'll come back to some of these things next week. There are many out there who would detract you from your single focus on Christ. There are those who want to destroy you, those who want to divert your attention, those who want to get you so busy you don't have time for Christ. There are some who say, whoa, you got to really sacrifice in order to get Christ's attention. There's a lot of false views out there, and they are still in our generation. I wish I could say they were done, but bewaring is still a call for the church. Watch for it, watch for it, watch for it. We're going to talk about that, I hope, next week, just a little bit more, and then start with the next command, too, because there's so many good things, and I don't want to leave that off, and you're not wanting to stay another hour, are you? No? Okay. Then we quit. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you. Your word is so wonderful. Thank you for giving it to us. There are things here that we are called to do. Maybe we have forgotten. Maybe we have been diverted by other things. Maybe our singular focus on Christ isn't what it ought to be because we have been looking at other things. I pray today, Lord, that we would all examine ourselves and see where we stand in our relationship with you. That we would want more of Christ and more of Christ and more of Christ. And be wearing all the time of those who would divert us away. Keep our eyes set on you, Lord Jesus, so the things of the earth become strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Thank you for who you are, for the work you're doing in our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen.